He must win the battle. Amen? Amen. And he will win the battle. Uh, Let's continue our worship this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 23. Uh, We're actually going to be going through the entire chapter this morning, all 35 verses. So we've got a lot to get to. For our scripture reading, we're just going to read Acts 22, verse 30. So I'll have you turn uh, for the reading of God's word. Uh, We stand out of reverence for the holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible, God-breathed Word of God. And again, Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him, that's the commander, released Paul, and ordered the chief priests and Sanhedrin to come together brought Paul down and set him before them. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the privilege to come together to sing praises to your holy name. You are truly worthy of our praise. It's a delight to give it to you. And we just pray now that you would be glorified in this time as we open up your word. We pray that you would change our hearts through this text. We pray that you would regenerate hearts through this text, that you would save souls this morning Uh, If that should be your will, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Again, we have so much to get to this morning, uh, so let's just dive right in here. Again, as we catch up with the Apostle Paul, who has just been twice spared, first delivered from the hands of a bloodthirsty mob in the temple who wanted to see him wiped off the face of the earth, and then from the excruciating torment of a Roman scourging. Now he stands before an even more zealous audience made up of the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious authority of Israel, where he will once again declare the hope of the resurrection of the nation's Messiah. In fact, not only the nation, but of the whole world. What a tremendous opportunity for Paul, standing before the very leaders of God's chosen people. Imagine if God used him to persuade these men. What could have been? Well, let's look at uh, verse 1, see how this goes. Luke writes, Now Paul, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, and it said that Paul didn't have the best eyesight, we know, but here we see he's gazing intently at them. He's fixated on these 70 men, plus the high priest of Israel himself as he looks intently at this council. He opens his mouth. He begins his defense. Brothers, he says. Remember, these are his kinsmen according to the flesh. Brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. I'm sure that's not how Paul envisioned this all going, right? But that's what this says. Ananias, the the high priest of Israel at that time, the supreme religious leader of Israel, the ruler of this council, commanded those standing by Paul to strike him, to hit him right in the mouth. Can you imagine this? This is shocking to us anyway, but it wouldn't be shocking to anybody in that room. From what I read of Ananias, uh, different from the Ananias of the Gospels, but from what I read of this Ananias, the strike wouldn't have been shocking to anybody in these chambers. 
Ananias had this reputation for being arrogant and haughty, quick-tempered, deceitful, and overall uh, cruel and violent man, uh, even towards his people, I should say, especially toward his own people. You see, unlike Paul, he did not love his kinsmen according to the flesh. Ananias loved Ananias. That's who he loved. So he didn't hesitate to sell out his own people for a profit, and he was willing to do anything to attain retain or maintain his position. He was hated by these people. He was hated by Gentiles. He was hated by the Jews. He was really hated by everybody other than, of course, his peers and fellow religious leaders who benefited from his perverting twisting of, perverted twisting of Scripture, his detestable policies and practices, proving that the Catholics weren't the true innovators of such methods after all. Uh, this type of corruption has been around for thousands of years. And this guy, he was among the worst, okay? Uh, he fit right in with Jesus' characterization of the former high priest and the members of this council, those whom he called blind guides, hypocrites, servants, uh, excuse me, serpents, vipers, children of hell, he called them. Remember, these were the chosen set-apart people among the chosen set-apart people. But in reality, they were corrupt. They were no better than the heathens that they despised. That's Ananias in a nutshell. More on that in a moment, but for now, let's go back to the strike to the mouth of Paul here. What did Paul say that was so bad that somebody slugged him in the mouth for it? He said, I have lived my whole life in, in all good conscience before God. Well, big deal. That, that doesn't seem like a punch-worthy statement at first glance here. What does this mean? Is Paul saying that he was perfect here? Is that what this means? We know he would go on to write to Timothy after this event, I am the chief of sinners. He said, I was a, a blasphemer. I persecuted the church. I imprisoned Christians. I approved of their executions. He's definitely not claiming to be perfect. So what does this mean then? My whole life and good conscience before God. Well, one commentator said it's important to understand that conscience does not determine whether actions are morally right or wrong. Now, Paul's conscience had once permitted him to persecute Christians, which was clearly wrong. So he's not saying that he's never done anything wrong here. What he's saying is he had a clear conscience. His Individual convictions based on what he knows to be appropriate or inappropriate based off the standards of morality that have been revealed to him. Okay, That's a conscience. Quote, Conscience is the faculty that passes moral judgment on a person's action, but it does so uh, based only on the highest standards of morality and conduct perceived by that individual. It's an individual thing. It's everybody's individual standard of morality, which is pretty scary if you think about it. But what this means is that it is thus neither the voice of God nor is it infallible. It's possible for the conscience to be damaged, dysfunctional, and even destroyed. We can have destroyed conscience. The Bible speaks of a weak conscience, a wounded conscience, a defiled conscience, an evil conscience, And worst of all, a seared conscience, one so covered with scar tissue from habitual sin that it no longer responds to the prodding of divine truth. That's scary. 
Another commentator said, a conscience has been compared to a window that lets in the light. God's law is the light. The cleaner the window is, the more the light shines in. As the window gets dirty, the, the light gets dimmer. Finally, the light becomes darkness. That's why there's that lengthy section in Romans chapter 7 where Paul talks about doing the very things he knows he ought not to do. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. That's Paul struggling with conscience and what guided his conscience. God's law, God's word. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. A a good conscience, a pure conscience, is one that lets in God's light so that we are properly convicted if we do wrong and encouraged if we do right. Uh, Again, a defiled conscience is one that has been sinned against so much that it's no longer dependable. We can't rely on it. That's what you see happening in in the world out there. Uh, the majority of, nation, of this nation is, is made up with uh, people who have seared conscience. They, they have no moral compass. It's a broken and corrupted society. Uh, here in Acts 23, verse 1, Paul is saying, look, just in terms of the move from Judea- Judaism to Christianity, even my former conduct in Judaism, I can stand here today and say I didn't act against my conscience. That's what he's saying. I didn't violate my conscience when I was imprisoning these people. It wasn't a violation of conscience. My conscience is clear before God, he says. So you can accuse me all you want, but I don't have any lingering guilt over what I've done. Just then, pop, right to the kisser. Get slugged. Why? Because the high priest thought that Paul was showing up this council. Ananias didn't think that now, Paul was in any position to be arrogant or haughty. This is similar to the blind man that Jesus healed back in John 9. He said, look, I don't know about the guy who healed me, okay? But I do know that since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins. You would teach us? And John says they put him out of the synagogue. You're out of here. You don't think you can come in here and teach us. We're the Pharisees. We're the council. Same thing here. Remember, Paul is he's standing there bloodied. He's beaten. He's in rags. He's, he's had his clothes ripped off, almost get scourged by a Roman whip. He, they, they say this poor, beaten, bloodied, traitor, Christ follower Paul is going to teach us about conscience? Hit him in the face. That was the attitude here of Ananias. What's Paul's reaction? Look at verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of, your, of the law order me to be struck, he says? Now, before we get to whether this response was right or wrong, it's important to know that Paul's words were prophetic. Just a few short years after this very moment here, Ananias was would not only be removed from office, but he would be assassinated by Jewish uh, assassins, uh, Jewish revolutionaries, his own people. He was killed by his own people. That being said, uh, this type of response certainly isn't what we've grown accustomed to seeing from Paul, is it? We do see a couple instances where he gets fired up. I wish they would emasculate themselves, he says. He said that of the Judaizers, you remember that? But typically, he had a very cool and calm, collected way about him, even in the midst of clear persecution. 
right? For the most part, he follows the example of his Lord. Uh, Do not revile in return when reviled, right? But this certainly isn't the case of turning the other cheek, is it here? No, he pops off. He snaps back quickly, and it appears angrily so. Anger isn't always wrong, by the way. There is a righteous anger, but I'm not totally sure that's the case here. We'll see why in a moment. First, we've got to talk about this insult. It's a doozy. Uh, he called him a whitewashed wall. Okay? This may be a nod to uh, Ezekiel's prophecy against the false prophets and false leaders of Israel who claim to build a strong spiritual wall which will, would ensure peace for the people inside. But Yahweh knew they were false prophets. They were, they were false shepherds. He said, so... Tell those who plaster this wall over with whitewash that it will fall. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will pull down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare and it will fall. You will be consumed in the midst. And you will know that I am Yahweh. This wall, it looks great on the outside. It's good from far, but far from good. Uh, behind the fresh cone of paint, it's, it's unstable. It's, it's crumbling. It's deteriorating. Therefore, it will be easily crushed when exposed for what it really is. Just like wicked men. Easily crushed. Again, think of Jesus' word. Words to these guys. Okay, many of the same. Many of these guys were probably in the same council that they were 30 years uh, earlier. If not, they're around somewhere. He said, "Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And in this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men." Inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy, lawlessness. He said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Imagine God who sees the heart, who knows the heart, who knows the thoughts of every man, woman, child who has ever lived. Imagine God who knows your heart saying this to you, but your conscience is so hardened that you don't listen to him or act on it. Instead, they blew him off, right? They said, he has a demon. He he, he does these things by uh, demons, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Eventually, they eliminated the light that shone in their darkness, or so they thought. Jesus said these guys are whitewashed tombs. The Jews, they were known for, for covering the entrances of their graves and sepulchers with lime. Okay, so that when they walked in, they didn't accidentally bump in, into it or touch these, uh, the stone, unknowingly defiling themselves in the process. So a layer of lime acted as a protectant of accidental defilement. But the true defilement was within them, wasn't it? That's right. And they didn't like hearing that. Same thing here. To whomever on this council gave the command uh, to strike, Paul says, you are a religious hypocrite. You act all high and mighty, wielding the Mosaic or oral laws when it's a benefit to you, yet you violated the very law that you claim to defend by 
smacking an uncondemned man in the mouth. And that's true. Deuteronomy 25 says, only a man found guilty could be beaten. You whitewashed wall, Paul says. You know, I think of this often. The religious cloak men and women use to get ahead to to push their own agenda, to satisfy their own lusts for power, to control money, sexual fulfillment, whatever it is, and they do so in the name of God and in the name of Christ or a man-made version of Christ. You know, you can typically tell when you're getting conned by people like this. They typically either want your money or your body. And and in in many cases, they'll get both. Um, It can be true of false converts as well, you know, trying to appear holy on the outside, but their actions, they don't match up. They don't follow. I can't help but think of one family that I heard of years and years ago that attended Littleton uh, Bible Chapel way before my time. It said that this guy had a, a wife and a couple of young kids. This guy was giving money to the church. He was giving a tithe, but he wouldn't feed his kids. He couldn't feed his kids. His children couldn't eat, and he was giving money to the church. And the other said, this church doesn't need your money. Feed your family. Be a man. What, what are you thinking? Do you, do you think you're impressing anybody? Do you think God's impressed by your false piety? That's just one example. A lot of folks, they look good on the outside, but in, in reality, and on, on the inside, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. They're dead on the inside. That's what Jesus, and now Paul says of the religious leaders of Israel. They were hypocrites. They were <coughs> shady, venomous vipers. You know, the viper was one of the most dangerous animals in Palestine, camouflaging themselves. They'd hide under rocks, behind bushes. They'd wait for some poor soul to pass by so they could strike, injecting their deadly poison into their victims. They were sneaky. They couldn't be trusted. They, they did major damage to folks who didn't ex- exercise extreme caution in their presence. Did you know that a viper can open its mouth up 180 degrees when it strikes somebody? And the viper has the ability to determine in its own mind how much venom to inject into a person. If they just want to wound uh, a person or an animal, they just wound them. If they want to kill them, they put in a little bit more venom. I have no idea why I told you that. But... <laughs> um, well, in our day, many vipers abound. Okay? both inside and outside the church. And, and we have to exercise extreme caution when they're around, okay? There's vipers running around all over the place, TBN, uh, you know, on the free channels and the, the cable network, uh, in churches, behind pulpits. You have to be prepared so you, they don't strike you. And the way that you're prepared is by knowing the word. You got to know the truth. Don't let anybody take advantage of you. Don't be poisoned by the crippling guilt of legalism, deceptive tactics of hyper-emotionalism, empty promises of temporal health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, now here is Paul. He's standing in the viper's den, right? And the chief viper, the chief whitewashed wall is leading these proceedings. Paul says, you're a hypocrite. Notice the reaction of the council in verse 4. Those standing nearby said, do you revile the high priest of God? They're saying, look, you can't talk about him like that. Are you kidding me? You're breaking the law again. And that was true. 
you can't say that. And Paul knows this law as well. Exodus twenty two twenty eight. Right away, verse 5, he said, I was not aware, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, why not? Uh, we already heard Ananias was a scumbag here. He, he just had Paul smacked in the face. He was clearly a religious hypocrite. What's the problem with Paul snapping back like this? Well, the problem was his conscience was pricked. His conscience was pricked at this clear violation of the law of God. God said, do not curse them. Do not speak evil of them. Now, was Ananias evil? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But was the position he held evil? No. Because it was from God. You see, Paul had respect for the office of high priest, even though he clearly didn't have respect for the man in the position. Think about it. Do we, do we respect the office of the president of the United States of America? For sure. But do we respect the president who just a week ago voiced his support for sex change operations on little children? His, his, his advocation of abortion. No, we don't respect him. I agree, Enos. We don't respect him. I wouldn't try to shake the guy's hand if he was walking towards me. I'd go on the other side of the street. I don't want to be anywhere near that guy. I don't want my wife anywhere near that guy. <laughs> but, the, but the office is still to be respected. Same with our governor. Uh, his, his conduct, his policy on late-term abortion, his, his practices are repulsive. They're reprehensible. They're repugnant. But the office he holds isn't necessarily evil, is it? No. The idea of government is a good thing. Uh, formal leadership structure is a good thing. God instituted government for the protection of society. Without it, and were each man to live according to his own way, we'd be in real trouble, okay? When guys like the affirmation get into office, they can bring a nation to ruin. But the position itself is not evil. This is a, a continual reminder to be praying for our leaders, yes, even the current president and governor, that they would repent, that they would bend the knee to Christ, that they would turn from their ways, turn to their creator by faith in the gospel. God is worthy of their praise as well as our praise. Well, in this case, Paul says, yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't speak evil of a high priest. He's Moved by the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of him, now pricking his conscience to acknowledge his falling short, acknowledge his sin, and turn from it. He was instantly repentant. That's the big difference between human hypocrisy and divinely enabled humility. That's a good lesson for us, a good takeaway for us to always be quick to acknowledge our error, seek forgiveness where we've fallen short. All right, we've got to get moving here. Uh, Luke goes on to note a I shouldn't have told that viper, those viper facts. Uh, Luke goes on to note a remarkable change in the room in verse 6. He says, But knowing that one group were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And 
as he said this, there was dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. Uh, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great outcry. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Supposing a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. That's remarkable. Uh, So Luke gives us a snapshot of these two groups here. Sadducees, they were like the ultra-wealthy uh, they were like the influencers of the day. They had the money, they had the prominence, they had the reputation for being powerful men among the people, so they were appointed to the council. Um, they usually made up the majority of the Sanhedrin, including the high priest. So Ananias was a Sadducee. Okay? Luke reminds us they didn't believe in resurrection, uh, the resurrection, angels or spirits. So they dismissed Paul's testimony right from the get-go. They didn't believe in life after death. They thought this was all there was. Get it while you can. Live it up. If you're prosperous, God loves you. If you're a sinner, God will smite you. But only in the here and now. What about you? Do you believe in life after death? Well, you could die at any moment. You better be sure. On the other hand, the Pharisees were actually, theologically speaking, not that far off from what we would hold to in certain areas, anyhow. They did believe in the resurrection, They did believe in spirits and angels and demons. They believed all the sacred texts, the Psalms, Proverbs, all the prophets were divinely inspired. The Sadducees, they said only the first five books of Moses were authoritative. So all of a sudden, Paul appeals to his former associations in Judaism as a Pharisee and says, look, what this all boils down to here is the hope of the resurrection. That's why I'm here. All of a sudden, half the men in the chamber start to say, you know, he's got a point there. You Sadducees, you better listen up. You could learn a thing or two from this guy. Well, then the whole scene changes, right? Luke says in verse 9 that some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. We find nothing wrong with him. Now, that's a huge statement. Don't miss that in your Bibles. The scribes, they hated Jesus. They hated him. They they hated his followers. They hated Paul. They wanted to kill all of them on multiple occasions. And they were successful in in doing so, in killing some of these people. Paul was one of the guys who approved of their execution. And they did kill Christ himself. They killed the Messiah. This is the same council of men. Now we find nothing wrong with Paul. That's a remarkable statement. But unfortunately, it doesn't absolve them of their viper-like status. You see, the only reason they're saying that is because they were using Paul as a pawn to justify their selfish religious ambition. They wanted to rule Israel on their own. They were tired of bipartisan efforts. Uh, So it's not like these guys had some sort of epiphany to the reality of Paul's role as the apostle of the risen Lord, the witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Though again, just doctrinally speaking, they weren't that far off. Um, so you got this conflict, right? You got this human conflict over theology. But now I want you to notice in verse 10 the divine comfort. Okay, this is great. As a great dissension was developing because the commander would, uh, because the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, bring them into the barracks. 
So Claudius Lysias, this Roman commander, says, man, this guy is like a lightning rod for controversy here. Everywhere he goes, there's conflict. There's, there's a riot everywhere this guy goes. So they, they take him. They grab him out of there by force, Luke says. They take him back to the barracks. Now, again, I don't want to speculate too much here. But think about Paul, okay? Yes, he knows that persecution will await him in every city. That's what the Lord told him. He knows that he has been called to suffer. Yes, he's willing to be bound and even killed for the name of Jesus Christ. All those things are true. But think about these past few days here. He comes back to Jerusalem. He immediately has to take a vow because he's being slandered by some Jews in the church. So he's in the temple courts where a few guys cry out, there he is. There's the guy who hates Moses and hates the temple and hates all of us. They start to beat him to death. The Romans save him, giving him an opportunity to go back to the rabid uh, crowd to explain these things. So he's preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching the hope of the resurrection. He mentions the Gentile, and they, they just end up screaming for his death again. They say, somebody needs to wipe this guy off the face of the earth. The Romans then take him back into the barracks, they tie him up for interrogation and come close to ripping the flesh off of his back with their scourge, with that whip. Thank God he was a Roman citizen himself. God spared him. Now here he has the opportunity of a lifetime to preach the gospel before the rulers of his people, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He barely makes it out of his introduction without being forcefully grabbed by one of the Roman soldiers. Now he's got nothing to show for his time in Jerusalem but a big old fat lip. Okay? That's got to be discouraging, right? That's a bummer. Well, look what happens in verse 11. On the very night, the Lord stood at his side, said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. In a moment of utter discouragement, Paul receives a word from the great comforter. Okay? Comfort from the Lord himself and a charge. You've done well, my good and faithful slave, my faithful witness. And guess what? You're going to go to Rome and do the very same thing. Take courage. Be encouraged. Oh, to hear that from the Lord of Lords. Oh, what a balm to the weary soul of Paul here, and it can be for us as well if we belong to him. In our times of discouragement, we can cling to the promises of God and his word. Lo, I am always with you. I will keep you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. He says, those are sweet words to the downcast soul, only available to the believer in Christ. As Spurgeon said, would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. This was divine comfort in just the right place at just the right time. And remember, Christ said, you're going to Rome, which means Paul could have the assurance that he was truly invincible till this took place, right? Noel said it this morning. This was John Wesley I don't quote him much from this pulpit, but he said, I'm immortal until my work is done. 
And that's true for every believer in here this morning. You're immortal until he calls you home. So good. Divine comfort. Look at verse 12. Now, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this scheme. I think Alex asked, where are these 40 guys now? I mean, how how long did they last? Um, It was easy to break vows in those days, though. Just offer a sacrifice. You break a vow. Interestingly, though, that word for conspiracy literally means collecting something together in a physical bundle, okay? And figuratively speaking, a coalition or unruly gathering. The word for bind is, or bind with an oath, is anathematizo. You've heard this word, anathematize. Anathema, it means to devote something to destruction, okay? Even Paul uses it. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. Same word, anathema. As we have said before, so I again, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. May they be devoted to destruction, eternally speaking. That's a, big, a pretty big statement, right? You better be sure you have the right gospel. Anyhow, if you combine these two words, what we see here are unruly men coalescing together for the purpose of devoting someone to destruction. In this case, it was Paul. And Luke says they weren't alone. Okay, they needed some accomplices. So maybe some with a bit of power, a bit of influence. I don't know how about the Sanhedrin. That's where they go. Verse 14. They came to the chief priests and the elders, mostly Sadducees, by the way, and they said, we have bound ourselves under a curse to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. They're telling the religious authority. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more carefully. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near. This is taking a page out of the old Iscariot playbook here. These 40 guys colluded with the supposed leaders of Israel, soliciting their aid to have Paul brought from the barracks to the chambers where they would rush him and murder him in broad daylight. And they would have been arrested for it, by the way, and tried for it, by the way, but they didn't care. One preacher said they were like suicide bombers. They were blinded by their hatred and their religious zeal. Now, this is fascinating. These guys plot, they scheme, they have this grand plan, and all the while the Lord is providentially orchestrating all the events, knowing full well he's going to get his guy to Rome. Look at verse 16. When the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, he came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said to him, uh, to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the Sanhedrin as though they were going to inquire somewhat more carefully about him. So don't be persuaded by him, this kid says. For more than 40 of them who have bound themselves 
excuse me, for more than 40 of them who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him are lying in wait for him and now they're ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Now we don't know anything about this young man. We don't know much about his family either, even though his sister, he apparently had a sister and he had a dad who was a Pharisee. Uh, this is the first time, uh, one of the first times that Paul's family is, is really mentioned here. But we know that somehow that this young man got word of this conspiracy. Now, I want you to know this. this is very important for a church like ours. Notice that Paul didn't just sit there and say, meh, the Lord is sovereign. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just hang out here and watch him work. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God maybe more than anyone. Yet he was active. Oh, really? They're planning on killing me? Go tell the commander. He, he made active choices and decisions knowing full well that God was in complete control. That there's, that's that sovereignty human responsibility thing, that tension again. But we know God is in control, but that doesn't mean we just sit around like a bump on the log here. We don't want to be like the frozen chosen, right? No, the Lord would say, go to the ant, you sluggard. Hear me. Believe what I'm telling you. Get up. Go. These guys are going to kill you. Do something. You know, it's like the old joke of the guy who kept praying over and over, oh, God, let me just win the lottery. Let me win the lottery. God says, well, you at least have to meet me halfway and buy a ticket. That's a bad joke. I don't think God would say that. But, now, don't miss the fact that uh, Paul is active here in the preservation of his own life so he can continue to preach the word, so he can continue to preach the hope of the resurrection. So he gets his protection in verse 23. Okay? When God, and, and, excuse me, and when he called to him two of the centurions, he said, make ready uh, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to proceed to Caesarea by the third hour of the night and provide mounts to Paul uh, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Fascinating. All of a sudden, the apostle Paul, is, he's getting ushered out of Jerusalem with 470 men and his own horse. The, the providence of God demonstrated in these narrative accounts are, are astonishing. They really are, right down to the last detail. Uh, look at verse 25, okay? The commander wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias... That's, they would say that at the beginning of their letters. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came to, up to them with troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the Sanhedrin, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And, when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to speak to him, uh, speak against him before you. What a great letter. Very well written letter. Very classy. What's missing though? Well, gee, Lysias, what about that whole binding an uncondemned Roman citizen, stretching him out over the whipping post to scourge him and torture him? Those details you conveniently left out of here. Why don't you say anything about that? Well, of course he's not going to say that. He's got to put on his his best face before his boss. He's got to put himself in the best light possible. So he deflects. Oh, the Jews. See, the Jews did it. They, they falsely accused him. The, the Jews wanted to imprison him. The Jews wanted to kill him. The Jews were conspiring against him. So I protected our citizen. 
I told his accusers, come to you personally. That's how we do it in Rome. It's, it's a preservation through minimization. It's a classic tactic of the unregenerate man or woman. They're always blaming somebody else. It's always somebody else's fault. Lysias knew if the governor found out about that binding, uh, he'd be held accountable. Maybe fired. He may be even sentenced himself. You know, I wonder if Paul ever mentioned this in his trials. If he saw Lysias standing there, I wonder if he ever said, you know, this guy, he was going to scourge me. Let's, let's call it even here. I don't know if he did, though. What we do know, finally, <clears throat> is what Luke says as he closes this section in verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But on the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Lord willing, that's what we'll look at together next week. I'd like to close with one quick takeaway. Really, it goes back to Paul's comment in verse 6 where he said, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. We know this subject has been the source of much contention throughout history, certainly in the first days of the early church. Remember Acts 4, the same chief priests and guards of the Sadducees became agitated because they were teaching people and uh, the, the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts 17, even some of the philosophers in Athens mocked the thought of it. Uh, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer at Paul. Why? Here's why. The unbelieving world hates the doctrine of Christ's triumphant resurrection because they know it means they will be raised too. And they will have to give an account for their lives and face the judgment of an eternal death. But for the believer, the resurrection of Christ proves that those who belong to him will be raised to eternal life. And this is what sets us apart from every religion in the whole world. Do you know that? No resurrection of Jesus Christ, no justification. No justification, no salvation. No salvation, no reconciliation. No reconciliation to God, divine condemnation. Eternal damnation at the hand of God. No resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, no hope. My brothers and sisters, we are people of hope. Amidst all the chaos of this world, amidst all the darkness, the depravity, the corruption, amidst the pain and the suffering, the affliction, even amidst our own sinful condition, our, our obvious falling short of the glory of God, believers, true believers, in the true Christ of the Scriptures can have true hope because of the resurrection from the dead. The hope of the life to come, the hope of restored fellowship with our Creator, the hope of one day being in the very presence of God Himself, the very God of all creation, in a place where there are no more tears, where there is no more mourning, there are no more false teachers, there are no more false religions, no more people getting manipulated and taken advantage of by those whom they trusted with so much, no more corrupt politicians. No more wicked rulers, no more sickness, no more doctor's visits, no more hospitals, no more pharmacists, 
No more hunger, no more child abuse, no more divorce, no more broken families, no more pain, no more sin, and no more death. No more death for the believer. Why? Because death is swallowed up in victory. So we can say with the saints of old, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We can say with Paul, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope. And those who have had their sins forgiven through Christ are the only ones who have it. It's an exclusive group. It's not for everybody. But it's available. It's available to everyone who would but hear his word this morning. Cry out for his salvation through his marvelous gospel of grace. We were all conceived and born in sin. We were all born under a curse. We were born under the just judgment and wrath of a holy God. He created us. He sets the rule. That's what he says. We were separated from him spiritually speaking we are physically alive but we are spiritually dead and if we die in this original condition no matter how we may look on the outside no matter how we present ourselves no matter how successful or prosperous we, or pious we are in our lives here on this earth the reality is if you die in this condition if you die in this condition you will be anathema for all of eternity. You will be devoted to destruction, first in hell, and then in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever, for all of eternity. But the hope is, the, the, the only hope, by the way, the hope of the gospel of God is that he himself has conquered death This spiritual death was conquered by God himself and he shares his victory over death with those who belong to him. Those who have come to him by faith alone in the gospel. That's why this is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith, in all of Christendom. Paul said without it, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus was God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. Which is the only way that he could be sinless. It's the only way he could then be a perfect sacrifice offered up by his Father, the one who existed eternally with the Father, but was sent by the Father to bear the penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. All who would by his grace believe that his death, his sacrificial death was sufficient to atone for our sins, to satisfy the righteous wrath of a holy God, to appease the wrath of his Father, to make us righteous, to declare us justified in the sight of a holy God. We can know this for sure because he lives. He's alive, seated at the right hand of the Father right now. We can trust that he is coming back because he lives. We can trust that he will come back, take us to be with him because he lives. We can trust that he has the power to breathe the breath of life into our cold, dead, wicked hearts, making us alive together with him because he lives. Because he was raised from the dead. 
proving that the Father accepted his sacrifice and is able to then give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of you, my friends? Is that true of you? Have you declared victory over spiritual death because of what Jesus Christ has done for you through his death, burial, and resurrection? Is that true of you? Do you know the, the right gospel that Paul talked about? Well, you just heard it. Have you believed in this gospel? Have you been born again? Not by your works, not by your deeds, or your adherence to doctrines and covenants imposed upon you by some man-centered false religious system, but not by what you've done, but what has been done for you? Have you believed in this? I would implore you this morning, if you've never believed in this gospel, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would urge you to cry out to your creator. Ask him to save you. He knows. You can't do anything to save yourself, but you could die at any moment. Think about that moment that you stand before your creator when all this is gone, when the exterior is gone, and the one who knows your heart sees you for who you truly are. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse your heart with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to reconcile you to himself through the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. I would implore you to turn from your sin, turn from this corrupted and cursed earth and this world, to turn to your creator by grace alone, through faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray and we'll have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in worship. Musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much.